Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 313, recorded December 6, 2022, and I am Brian Aachen. Hey, I'm Michael Kennedy. Well, I'm the person with the scroll bar going across. I just realized that <laughs> I'm <laughs> Kelly Schuster-Ferretis. <laughs> and I'm Sean Tiber, and we're here from the Teaching Python podcast, so it's good to be here with you both. Recommend everybody listen to Teaching Python. The focus is kind of around teaching, being teachers and teaching Python. But I think anybody that helps anybody with learning Python, uh, is, it's worth listening to your show. 100%. It's more like about anybody who's a learner, which is everybody, hopefully, out there yeah. <laughs> listening. <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you. Well, should we get into the first uh, topic, uh, Michael? Yeah, let's just jump right in. Over here, this one, I ran across on Mastodon and I thought, what a fun, quick little thing. And with the teaching angle from the Teaching Python podcast with Kelly and Sean, I thought this might be kind of a cool thing uh, for, for teachers or for kids for something simple with Python, but also I just like it. So if you look over uh, here in, in the link, um, this person Teresita uh, posted spell out numbers with Python. All you got to do is pip install inflect. Check this out. So with inflect, this is the Python library, you can just say, you create an inflector thing and you say number to words and you give it some giant number. You're like, I have no idea what this is. And it says, in this case, it was 8,675,309. And so any number you give it, it'll tell you the, the friendly version or the human version of it. So if you want to turn, you know, written numbers into spoken, spoken said numbers, this is the way to do it. I, I think, you know, this is great. I don't know you need it for 8 million, but if you go much farther than that, if you go beyond trillion, then it gets uh, really interesting. Another one that I found after I discovered this, because on Mastodon, somebody said, this is amazing. Uh, have you heard of num to words as well? So num to words is another one that you can use. Num to words is possibly better. The API seems a little bit cleaner. Now, I haven't pushed the outer bounds of like, well, what is the biggest number it will speak to me in a reasonable way? So I don't know which one will go farther in that way. But in terms of kind of usefulness, this num to words, the two spelled out as a, a number, you can actually get a command line version. So you can pip x install this. And then on your terminal or command prompt, you just say num two words and put a number. And then you don't even have to write Python code. You just call it. But of course you can, and it will work in multiple languages. Oh, you the language move. part is that, cool. That, that, I saw that there, there, my teacher side just went, wow, I can go into Spanish and French. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <So excited. laughs> well, yeah. Oh, so you, there's a bunch of different options. There's a ton of languages you can use here, Wow. which, which yeah. is really cool. Yeah, so so this is neat, and I, I wrote a little bit of code to just you know throw some um, sort of examples together and put those in the show notes. So you can use inflect, or you can use num to words. I think I would trend towards the num to words because the multilingual as well as the command line version. If you pip x install it, also the fact that we don't have to what, call an instance is that correct? Yes, terminology? yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh -huh. exactly. You don't have to create like some object and then call it on that. It's a little more Pythonic, you might say. I have a second grader in my household who's probably ready to cheat on his math homework with us. There's a lot of those <laughs> transfer questions, so so it could be fun. Yeah. I, I think this is great for like parents that are have kids in you know trying to come up with pronounced big numbers and stuff. 
occasionally yeah. I forget. <laughs> I know that's what I'm saying. I'm thinking of that too. But this is like um, fact number like 20 for the math teacher. I always tell them, no, we don't need math anymore. We'll just have Python. We don't need math anymore. I have a Python library that's going to give us number sense. <laughs> All right. So I got some homework for someone out there who's feeling ambitious. Uh, how about create this as a website as a service so we can just put it and then as a progressive web app, we can just put it on our phone. And then we can we can do it, or you could use uh, you could use PyScript and just install it, so the kids could just constantly go around and ask it, "What is this and, called? What is that called?" Exactly, and then set it up for phonetic um, pronunciation, so we can just have Siri pronounce it properly. Yeah, there you go. And on the audience, uh, Steve says, "I guess you could pipe it to say to get it to read the number out loud as well." Okay, yeah. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. That's pretty pretty dope. Okay, very cool. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's mine. Off to you, Brian. Uh, okay. So I'd like to <laughs> I'd like to go back in time um, to the origins of Python. Uh, no, I'm not going to read the whole article, but there was an article by uh, Lambert uh, Mirtens. Mirtens. Sorry, Lambert, if I got your last name wrong. Uh, but this is really it's a really cool but long article. Um, so we've I've heard I've heard f mostly from Guido uh, different stories about I guess they weren't different stories, but that Python did come from uh, a lot of inspiration from the uh, ABC language. I guess you probably have all heard that, right? Mm -hmm. But I haven't heard a lot of that. Like, what? Well, where did ABC come from? And and I and maybe that's out there, but I just haven't looked. But this is um, this is kind of going through it. So this is going back to 1970. Lambert was involved with um, teaching teaching programming, and this is teaching programming at university levels to people that had no programming experience. It's like um, yeah, they had a computer arts society. Um, they had non-numerical programming, and this is te and he mentions teaching uh, like artists and other people that aren't probably don't even hang around computers at all, and especially in the seventies, you, you wouldn't. Um, so they they were using, um, and then he kind of ties it in also to uh, modern day. Uh, a similar sort of topic is uh, Django Girls, which is a a great program that if anybody doesn't know about it, uh, tries to uh, get particularly women to um to use to, to learn learn and do something useful with python in one day um even if you've never touched a programming language which is an incredible experience but um he even mentions it's uh, going on in like istanbul so this these workshops go on all over the world it's just pretty awesome but they so he started with a, a programming language called telcomp um and the and it was uh, an, uns, an unstructured language similar to basic um and the reason why they chose it is just because it was easier to learn or easier to use. It was more more easy to talk about. And then this tale goes through, like it's a pretty long tale, but it goes through a lot of the uh, the frustrations they had even with Telcomp and then uh, deciding to um, to go into uh, teach, uh, developing ABC, uh, which was like started out with B uh, for B for beginner um, or B beta zero or B zero for the initial element or something, um, which is, I think, too, too nerdy for a for programming language name, but um, talks about the ABC project. A lot of this article is around the ABC, ABC project. But one of the things um, I wanted to highlight, try to get my notes back up, but wanted to highlight one of the things they, they brought up was really wanting to have ease of learning and ease of use um, desirable, but also at the same time, uh, use high-level uh, task-oriented features to make things easier. So they wanted things wanted it to be easy to learn, but also not 
uh, cumbersome to use as a, a later as a developer. And that, that was probably that was my experience with basic. It was fairly easy to learn. But then when you try to do something large, it's tedious. And Pascal was the same way with me. But um, Python's not so much. And one of the things they talk about is even they had this um, the the put uh, command right in there. So uh, put one, two in AB was uh, was to 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 put two values in two variables like and again the swapping of you could say put a b in b a to swap variables where every other language i've ever used you've got to use a third intermediate variable um and so we we use that in python today right so a comma b equals b comes a b comma a will do the same thing brian um, this is like looking back on um like evolution or something yeah. And when you when you see like oh I see here was where the fish started to grow an arm because it went on <laughs> land a lot yeah you know, this is like here's the tuple unpacking of early Python yeah so um, I encourage people to read it um, it's a it's just kind of a great read and a, a romp through history of Python so I mean we could in they even brought in like uh, ABC brought in I think Beta Zero did also of uh, uh, the space. Space, uh, you know, the spacing making sense and not having to do brackets and things, but having spaces for blocks. Um, uh, pretty cool ideas. Uh, the what else? Do I, one of the things that a couple of quotes. I'm not sure where it's at. Talks about Python success. Um, uh, the growth in pop and in popularity of Python from its inception 30 years ago as a one-person effort flying under the radar um, has been phenomenal, but not meteoric. It's Instead, it's been a long, slow, and steady rise, and the competitive advantage it had in a period where we needed a lot of programmers was the ease of use and ease of new programmers. So, yeah, in the last uh, 20 years, we really wanted needed a lot more programmers. Having Python be easy to learn has been uh, powerful. And then, uh, as it also comments, which we know about, um, where the uh, the use of um, extra languages that same that, that same concept of it's easy to learn but you don't have to stop using it when you do something advanced we see that with like data science and uh web libraries where if it needs to be super fast they stick it in an extension in a c extension or something or now rust often but um it hasn't slowed down and uh anyway great read uh thanks lambert for writing this Cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I always thought of uh, Python, especially for refugees from other languages, it's like it's cheating, right? Because it shouldn't be that easy <laughs> to do something that powerful or that complex. And it's interesting to see the origins of that, even just the uh, variable substitution or, um, you know, the multiple assignments. That's pretty cool to see that it has its origins that far back. Yeah. Um, and I kind of now I'm sort of here understanding some of the comments where every time we put in a new language feature like the match uh, match statement or um, or the walrus operator there's some people that are like are we making the language too complicated to learn now and um, I think those are valid discussions to have I don't think we've made it too too complex to learn right now but um, it's good to have those thoughts of like you know maybe it's a cool feature but do we want to you know I look I, my my thoughts on that are really just don't teach that. <laughs> right, I, right. I, probably, I probably wouldn't teach the match statement or the walrus operator to to new engineers. So yeah, indeed, very nice one. All right, Kelly. Oh, go ahead. One more comment. I was going to swap no. it over to your next item. No. Yeah. All right. Swap. Well, here we go. Let's swap talk about robots that teach kids. Oh yeah. So this has become the. I should, in a good way, the bane of my existence is finding all these bots, and it's like I have so many bots. This one's an old bot and it's one of it's a very popular bot for little kids 
um, very cute. They draw the line um, that can follow the line. It was using block code on the iPad, connects easy, and it's always been a real um, big staple for a lot of classrooms. It's called the Ozobot. But the interesting thing, coming in August uh, 17th, the Ozobot just introduced a Python beta version, which is super cool. Um, they got rid of the original Ozobot bit, which was a similar version, and then they made a new um, version of the Ozobot called the Evo Ozobot. And with this bot, it has line following, it has color detection, it has sound, it has proximity sensor, it has Bluetooth, it has crash detection. Um, you can even write functions within this, within the program for the beta. And then I think when you open up the, the um, documentation for the beta, they have um, five different programs already written um, in there for you to try out. And it's kind of cool. You have uh, a tree following and it can count how many branches are in a tree. So if you're talking, maybe you want to do a science classroom classification and you want to see how far removed, uh, this is very sciencey for you guys, how far removed an amoeba is from a, from a ape, you would go down the cladogram or the tree and you can calculate how many branches away. So it would be really cool how to incorporate the EvoBot and not that you can't count trees, but you know, just fun little things. <laughs> no, but it's a really cool way to, to get the kids thinking. Yeah. So it says it says there's two ways of programming. And, you know, Brian just spoke about the history of programming languages and all these text oriented languages. But neither of those are particularly I mean, it does come with the Python aspect, but it's not mm -hmm. the two options here are kind of like there's this blocky style of programming. Mm -hmm. And does that become Python as you know? <laughs> No, I'm not sure how they came about it, but the original was always block. And then the block would it would increase in difficulty depending on the age. Um, similar to a lot of the other block programs where you would have limited writing and then you would have color coding and then you would start pushing in more functions. But this one seems to be just a full-on Python beta version. And I think I put in the, um, there is an in online web browser where you can connect to the Ozo bot. I think mm -hmm. I gave you an, no, that's the yeah. simulator. That one's for the block, but that one's cool too. I'll try to find <laughs> it for you, but there's a, it's called, um, I'll find it for you, but it's called like Evo Ozobot and you can code right in the browser once you connect okay. via Bluetooth. Oh. Yeah. Let me see. This is it. So bots like these are great for learning to code. And this is one that I definitely tell parents when, because everyone asks me like, hey, what should I get for my kid? Like, should I get a micro bit? Should, what kind of robot should I get? The Ozobot is a great one because it can now yes. grow even further with your, your child as they're learning more about coding. So you can get them started with really basics, you know, writing um, on paper with a marker. It can follow the line and do different things as the color changes. They can then grow into using blocks to program it. And now they can code using Python. So it's the same robot, but now they've evolved their knowledge and understanding of computer science and computational thinking by progressing their, their languages as they go. So it's a really great use for that. This is really cool. Let me just try to do a little commentary for people listening and not seeing. Of course, the link's in the show notes. It looks like a little miniature R2-D2, <laughs> maybe like a little bit smaller than the palm of a kid's hand. Mm. And one way you can program it, which is fascinating, is you can draw a line with different colors, like a big, thick, sharpie looking line. But the colors teach it to do stuff. Like if it hits a red part of the line, it might spin or play a sound and then it goes to a black line and then like a blue one maybe means, you know, disco, whatever. I don't know what the 
the mapping over to his actions are. But that's that's really neat to get kids <laughs> thinking. And then they can go to this visual block and then they can go to Python. I, I agree. Yeah. This is neat. And I put the uh, editor on the show no the notes for you so you can okay. click on it. Yeah. So the the only uh, problem that I've been reading about is the, the Python's not picking up on the um, dimensions or the length of the line. So they have to be exactly four millimeters in order to do like tree branching. So it's working on... Um, on that feature. Whereas with the, the regular block, you can draw a kid can draw a line and it'll work, but I think that's great. And they have the, the examples. So they have the three simple ones that you can get right into the square walk example. Mm -hmm. And then it goes down into a little bit more complex where the template ones are. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Any idea how much, personal. I mean, like, if I'm One, a teacher. <laughs> yeah. $175 for the new Ozo um, Bot Evo. Used to be okay. 95 Um, But like I said, it's a new improved. You can get a class set. Class set of, I think, eight is, I don't know, I want to say 2000 Okay. So it's not too bad. Um, it is a, It is one of those things that a teacher could go and get a, a grant for I was thinking even like a teach at home sort of thing as well. It's oh, not, yeah. out, not out of bounds for. Yeah. Bounds. 175 is not, a, not bad for the bots going, you know, the bots that I've seen out there right now. And I really like the idea of, um, of having programming in be something that's interacting with the real world. Like mm -hmm. either, either that's what I liked about some of the, the, um, the MicroPython stuff um, or um, CircuitPython, uh, the Playground Express and stuff does lights and everything. Mm -hmm. But uh, this, it's maybe it's just a little robot, but having it, your computer change your code, change something that's they can see. Um, it does make a big difference to to uh, make that reality there. Yeah, and it's pocket sized, um, which is I love. <laughs> I love it's not big and bulky. You can throw it in your pocket and walk around. But I might lose it in my house. Oh, yeah, you man. might. Your cat <laughs> might take it or something. <laughs> but yeah, All that's right. fine. Excellent. Well, that's a really good, really good find. Brian, before we move on, I want to tell everyone about our sponsor this week. I would like to tell us, uh, tell everyone and to thank Microsoft and Microsoft for Startups um, for sponsoring this episode. Microsoft for Startups set out to understand what startups need to be successful and created a digital platform to help you overcome those challenges. And it's the Founders Hub. Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources to help solve startup challenges. Platform provides access to expert guidance, skilled resources, mentorship, and networking connections technology benefits, and so much more. Founders Hub is truly open to all. You don't need to be investor-backed, but you can be. Speed up development with free access to GitHub and the Microsoft Cloud. Unlock credits over time. Also, discounts and benefits from innovative companies partnering with Microsoft Founders Hub, such as OpenAI. You'll have access to their mentorship network, which includes hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines. Need advice on marketing or fundraising or idea validation? Tons of topics, including management and coaching, are, are available, and you'll be able to book a one-on-one -on -one meeting with mentors, many of whom were former founders themselves. It's no longer about who you know. Get the critical support you need from Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Make your ideas a reality today by visiting pythonbytes.fm slash foundershub2022. That link, of course, is in your show notes, and we appreciate you using the link to let them know that you heard about them from us. Yeah, thanks, Microsoft, for supporting the show. Hey, Brian, real quick, uh, real-time follow-up before we get on the next topic. Marco and the audience says, I envy every child who gets hooked on a programming with one of these. Yeah, yeah that's way more than compelling than uh, 
original basic or fortran or whatever many of us had to <laughs> fight our way through yeah awesome. all right guess the do... number game yes yeah. exactly yeah how about the print your name diagonal infinite many times that one's a good I, i'm still trying to find it but i remember when i was in third grade i had a book that had programming challenges that would unlock parts of the next uh, parts of the story so oh, wow. you'd read a few pages and then it would you'd have to solve some puzzle to figure out what happens next in the story and i i need to go back and find it because it was such a creative way of getting kids engaged and you know uh, it was the cost of a book choose your own adventure but with um but with code it's kind of like the yeah. advent of code thing yeah. that's my next yeah. sixth grade project i'm just going to have them do it you have to guess the right word in order to see the next lesson nice <laughs> exactly <laughs> Speaking of, of setting words, I want to talk to uh, something a little more uh, on the, the DevOpsy side, perhaps, uh, of things. But this is a real simple one that I think people will find some joy and use for. I don't know if you've written any Python code and then wanted to know what's happening with it. So if you open up Activity Monitor in macOS, if you open up Task Manager or some of the um, oh. Sysmon tools, and you say, what is my program doing? Is it using a lot of memory? Is it is it busy? It's not, nothing seems to be happening. Is it like the CPU is pinned or is it just stuck? You want to find your program in a list of programs or use even top or something like that. What is the name of your program? It's Python. It's always Python. And there might be many things called Python that are not even related to your thing called Python. You're like, no. So I want to tell people about this thing called set proc title as in set process title or name which is really really cool and its use case is incredibly simple uh, i think i even have an example here yes here no one of these uh i don't have the exact code but one thing that's cool is if you do anything with web stuff like micro or g unicorn if you would just have this installed as part of your web app or your api or any of those things, like in MicroWSGI, you can say proc name prefix is like, for example, on Talk Python training, we use MicroWSGI. So it says training dash, and then you just say auto proc name is true. Oh, when, cool. When I go to the server and I hit glances or top or one of these types of things, and you say, what are my processes doing? Well, guess what? It's called training MicroWSGI worker one, training MicroWSGI worker seven and eight and then for the thing that does the search engine as a system daemon i wrote in, Pry in python it was also called python in the list but now it's python search as in training search daemon and these things and all you're going to do is basically import set proc title and say at the beginning of your program set proc title whatever you want to see here off it goes, but also the web frameworks will pick this up and use it if they find it a lot of times. Nice. This is really cool when you're working in like a Docker environment where you've got a bunch of containers that are all running Python, um, especially ones that maybe yes. you are just, you know, uh, hosting rather than building. This is a great way to identify your specific processes. So I really like this. Yeah. I like it too, because it's just so simple to use. You literally, one import statement, what is its title? But it it knocks on, it follows onto these other tools that make it really useful so you can find your thing, not just, you know, one of the 10 Python things. Yeah, just don't set the product title to Python. <laughs> <laughs> you could be mischievous. Python. It could be also Python. 
exactly. <laughs> you could set it to like sneaky things. Like you could set it to notepad on Windows <laughs> or, or service host or like some weird thing. You're like, oh no, it's blending in. Or, this reminds yeah, me of that library, the progress library or the spinning wheel of death on the Mac. So we just have the the cursor and the 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 t- the ticking cursor going around. Yeah, all right. Just combine yeah, yeah. them, combine them two together, and just go. Yes, yeah. it's still processing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Evil so, virus. All right. Well, anyway, that's that's set proc title. People should check that out if they haven't used it. Cool. Nice. Cool. Um, well, I was looking in the past before looking at um, um, old the origins of Python. Now I want to look in the future at three twelve. <laughs> Didn't wow. we just get 3.11 though? Um, yeah, so uh, 3.11 really just was finally released in like November, right? So just last month, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but I'm already looking ahead to 3.12. So uh, it is in the alpha stages. So one of the things I'm, uh, I want to point out like a caveat right away is that um, publishers, uh, pre-release users should be aware that, um, that oh, I, I forgot, this isn't the right morning, but basically stuff in alpha might change. So be careful if you're using alpha. Um, so uh, 3.12 is on the alpha two release. Um, I'm already checking it out. One of the things I love already, I'm loving this in 3.11, so I'm glad they're going for more changes, is the improved error messages. 100%. So I, I'm already mm-hmm. seeing. Have you guys uh, noticed? Like, the, I love the it. It's so much easier to teach. <laughs> just let me tell you. I'm like, read down last line. Read it. <laughs> yeah. The 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 yes. um. If you import something or use a wrong variable or something, the 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 having it be able to say, did you mean? And then yeah. pick like the right thing. That's incredible. It is um, incredible. I love it. Uh, so even more improvements in the error messages, which is great. Um, I uh, uh, this is nice. Um, did you mean, yeah, did you mean from import? Oh, I've done this before. If you say import from, you can't do that. You have to say from thing, import thing. So uh, nice. Those are great. Uh, a, um, not a, The new feature so far, it's a Linux perf profiler. So if you care about that, run it on Linux. That's kind of neat. There's a whole bunch, of other, uh, whole bunch of other changes. The one thing I noticed was pathlib walk. I didn't know pathlib didn't have a walk. So uh, for your walking a directory tree, which is kind of neat. Anyway. Um, why am I bringing this up? Because uh, it's not going to come out until next November. So uh, why should you care about it? Well, you should care about it as soon as possible if you're a Python package maintainer. Um, if you maintain a package that other people are using, why not start already and see if there's anything in there that you need to care about? And what I did, um, so I wrote up a little uh, little article on testing with Python 3.12 on at pythontest.com. And I just went through the changes. So there were just a few lines of change that I needed to make. Um, if I, I I talk about where to get it and uh, using um, also running Pi, which is uh, Brett Cannon's Python launcher on Mac. In on Windows, it just comes with Pi. But once you install it, you can use three you can use that to to launch 312 to play with things. Um, so the one-liners really are I've got a toxiny file that I just added 312 to. That's it. Um, and then uh, what else? Um, GitHub Actions. GitHub Actions also does 3.12 now. So I added uh, 3.12 dev to the um, to the, the test matrix. But uh, so I, I released this this morning. I just wrote this up and sent it out. And I already got a question back from uh, Brian Skin saying, 
what if it fails? I don't really want to like not release something just because 312 failed. And there's a, the, if, if you care about that and want to make sure that that doesn't um, muck up your pipelines, there's a way to deal with that. So there's, um, and the, there's some do documentation on GitHub Actions on how to deal with that. And it's using continue on error. And I'm using the, the, the documentation uses the variable experimental. And that sounds good to me. So I'm um, adding like a, Treat everything else normal without experimental, but treat 312 dev as experimental, which means continue on error. And all this does, the only thing it does, if you set that for a particular thing, is it allows um, your uh, your different things that you're testing, it, it allows some of them to fail and not stop others. So by default, if anything fails in the, the GitHub Action pipeline, then it, it stops running all the rest of them. Um, and what this does is it allows the rest of them. You still see that something failed, and you uh, so you have to decide whether you care about that or not, but um, it'll let everything else pass. So nice. anyway. Also handy for ensuring that all of your tests uh, continue, right? So if you just want to let it continue on everything, all your pipelines will always work. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, never, you'll never break the build and have to worry about it. Yeah, just, yeah. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> Brian, is this what you're recommending? <laughs> no, I actually, seriously, I, I like that feature and I love the experimental classification. That's cool. Yeah. So, anyway, cool. yeah, what do we got yeah. next? Well, over to Sean. Yeah. So, I was at um, in Las Vegas last week for uh, reInvent from AWS and I'm still not sure what day it is. It's, it was <laughs> Las Vegas is its own time zone, meaning all of them at the same time. Um, but what I saw there was actually a really great uh, chat by a company called EF Education First. It's been around for a long time. They have um, schools and offices and training centers all over the world. And they were talking about how they were using the cloud to reinvent online learning. And they've been doing online learning for years and years, since the 90s, in fact. And what they recognized was that when we all went into the pandemic and we did online learning, a lot of it looked like old school classrooms where everyone was neatly arranged in rows and all sitting there facing forward and looking forward, just like we are kind of on this call right now. But they recognized that that's not really the way that classrooms work anymore. We don't all sit in rows and face forward towards the teacher. We we are more interactive, we're more engaged, we're more collaborative in the classroom, and they wanted to redesign their platform to do that. So they retooled their entire thing using um, AWS Cloud. But what was great about their approach was that they also baked in a lot of science into the online learning. And what they were talking about was the way that um, we've been doing measurements and metrics and science and learning online is always after the fact. We look at test scores or we look at assessments. We look at the way that people answer multiple choice questions, but we don't actually bring the science into the actual learning environment, into the live classroom. So what they did was used a number of AWS services, which you could find on any platform, uh, transcription, they used a bunch of NLP work with it, a lot of um, analysis to be able to figure out how engaged every student was in the classroom, basically as it was happening. So they could give feedback to the teachers to show them like, hey, these students are really engaged, these ones not so much. And then they also used some really great computer vision to see how people were interacting with the um, the coursework. So even just where their mouse was and what the position was, as well as their level engagement uh, uh, of engagement with the students. So what I really liked about this was they looked at this problem of online learning 
and tried to figure out how do we make it suck less for the teachers, for the students, for everybody involved. And what I got me thinking about um, in this talk was how could we use this in computer science? So how can we take that same level of engagement around learning a foreign language or learning business processes for an MBA and apply that to computer science in a really highly engaging sort of way and also a very metrics-driven, science-y sort of way so that everyone, student, teacher, administrator, can get better information about how the learning is actually happening online. I love that. Like educational data mining at its best. Oh, I mean, it, it, they really took it to another level. I mean, just their classroom experience is very dynamic, right? So you, it's almost that Twitch style. If you see on the screen here, the instructor is green screened in in just the corner of the screen, right? So it's not a, over in a box with a bunch of distractions. He's in the corner and he's doing in this screenshot, he's doing a little bit of a mix and match and drag and drop. But they had other examples where he was, um, they had created a digital set where he was behind the counter at a hotel and he could practice, you know, checking into a hotel using the foreign language with him as the receptionist and the student as the, um, the guest coming in. Hmm. That's pretty cool. I think there's like, there's a lot, a big uptick in a lot of the educational data mining side for the data scientist. And there's been a lot more ability to collect all this big data um, from these websites. We got a slew, tons and tons of data from COVID-19. And I think a lot of people are realizing, wow, we have so much data now, what can we do? And that's awesome. It's awesome. Just changes, just changes the dynamics. I haven't been in the education space directly enough lately to know, but obviously I've sent kids through there and, you know, I was in a lot of school myself. I feel like there's still probably a lot of opportunities for technology in education to make it smoother and nicer. Is, is that still true? Yeah. I mean, just think about, um, just think about when you provide a course where you do a course online and you're in this box and every, all your cohorts are, cohorts are kind of in this box and you have to switch. And then your slide takes over all the space when your students are trying to type. And if you don't have two monitors, everything gets in the way. So this can actually reshape the way that learning online for adults, for, for kids can can change, right? So can you imagine you're you're a tiny you're a nice little cutout person on the bottom screen and your code's going up behind you as you type. So you're not in the way and you're still there and you're still engaging mm -hmm. and you're still keeping, you know, that that physical, physical contact. I did air quotes there for those people listening. <laughs> I keep forgetting podcasts. Physical, you know, contact with your your students. So yeah. And did you just air quote that we were a podcast? A podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> Can't take her anywhere. <laughs> Sean, what else was your uh, takeaways from AWS reInvent? Uh, there were a ton of um, a, a ton of really great talks there, and I'm catching up on a lot of them that I missed online. But really, the the main point was that everything is asynchronous, everything is event driven, um, and it's pretty much Python all the way down. <laughs> like it's there's Lambda functions everywhere, and most people are writing them in Python. Um, there's you know uh, plenty of other options as well, but it's seemed like it was the most popular choice for making things happen in the cloud. Nice. Uh, it looks nice. like uh, a lot of the videos, notes, and other sessions are available on demand as well. So, Yeah, I put a link to the one with Werner Vogel, which was really great. That was all about um, the asynchronous world that we live in and making the, um, making the cloud more asynchronous, um, yeah. as well as a, I forget the other one I put in, I think it was a link to... Um, oh, a new feature that they added called Event Bridge Pipes, which I thought was kind of fun and a nice throwback. So Event Bridge on AWS is um, 
like a, a place where you can have event-driven code. So one process will finish, it will post an event saying, hey, I'm finished, and then another bit of code like a Lambda or something else can pick it up and and process it. But they took the idea of bash pipes or Unix style pipes, and they're using it to connect these events more directly. So instead of having to write a bunch of glue code to be able to pass data and information about these events from one process to another, from a producer to a consumer, you can just connect them together directly and say, okay, when this happens, then do this other thing, just like you would pipe output from one command into the input of another. Okay. Very interesting. Nice. I also got to give a shout out to AWS and for or in reInvent to get those videos out that quickly. I mean, it just stopped just a few days ago. So that's amazing. Yeah, they had live streams um, for just about everything. You could register for free for it. Um, pretty much every breakout session I went into had a really nice camera in the back vi- uh, filming it. Um, I think I even uh, I was even interviewed on a video podcast while I was there. They really were embracing video and live streaming and making it um available to as many people as they possibly could. I guess when you're like the top server holder and space provider, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> sure. It's just money, right? Just yeah. Money. Well, it's a great example of, uh, you know, a company investing millions in a conference yeah. to get billions back from the developers using their platform. So yeah. it seems like yeah. a smart investment. Absolutely. Well, yeah. But wait, before we move on really quick, just an audience, James just says, that would be an awesome use of tech in teaching comp side. Yeah. Stuff Definitely. You about, Sean. Yeah. Um, do we have any extras? Um, let's, I guess, round it out. Kelly, uh, you want to go first? Yeah. Yeah, uh, go ahead. yeah, yeah. So I just saw this and it's only been out for six days, but there's a new special interest group um, with the PSF, which is an EduSig, and it's led by Timothy Wilson. So I, I actually reached out to him because they've got a great list of universities that are teaching Python. They've got about five high school schools. Um, schools that are teaching Python. And I'm like, wait, I know there's more because I know there's a lot of our listeners out there are teaching uh, Python there. And with all the work that's done with the educational summit, I thought this was interesting. Um, There's not much on it from the PSF. So I'm hoping to find some more information soon, but it's only been out six days. So I've got to be patient, I guess. (laughs) I'm like, go (laughs) and launch with full five pages of information, please. (laughs) Yeah, that's excellent. That's nice. Uh, Sean, do you have any extras? Uh, I posted a couple of links to those uh, talks at reInvent that I really liked. Um, okay. Go go check them out. They're pretty fun to watch. And and like Michael said, I think pretty much all of the live streams are out there, certainly of all the keynotes, but uh, it was looking at dozens of different breakout sessions available now and all of it online for free. Wonderful. Cool. All right. I got a couple real, real quick ones here. So I talked about Text Sniper and Text Nader a little while ago, which is just fantastic software for you know select part of your screen whether this is a video you're watching with like a code demo and they're like oh here call this api or here's a link to just quick command shift to select but we left our windows friends out of that so uh who was it want to make sure i give some credit here um i don't remember who's in the server i'm sorry but someone thank you listener sent in a text extractor which comes from the microsoft power tools for windows power toys for windows which is the same thing for windows so if you're in windows and you want to be able to you know hit a button or hotkey and then say i want to copy this out of the video so i'm taking notes and i don't want to write you know five lines of bullet points i want to just paste them (laughs) boom here you go so there's that. That's a, a great a free one. Um, nice. Did a, a quick article uh, over on using Jinja partials to bro- break up your 
your HTML templates like Jinja and Chameleon and Django templates into more reusable pieces. And yeah, that's that's it for me. Just those quick ones. Okay. I'm. I just had it. Like I guess now that I have two teachers, um, and we were talking about how education has changed. Um, I, I just want to hear if you have a similar experience. So my daughter is in junior high, eighth grade. Um, and she's um, uh, the she was in sixth when they were home the whole year doing like uh, and the the they did it all on iPads. Um, now they're back. They're back, of course, but they're still using the iPads a lot, and they're even turning a lot of their work in. I mean, I, and I didn't, I didn't type when I was in uh, junior high. Um, I was writing stuff and they actually, some of the writing assignments have to now have to actually be in paper, which is the unusual thing. Most of them are typed <laughs> and sometimes they're in paper and people, and the kids complain of like, I, I don't want to actually write something. Um, have do you guys deal with that at all? Or I feel I feel the same way. I hate writing. I do too. I do too. <laughs> Sean and I would not have a printer in our room. We're like, they're like, do you have scissors? Do you have a pencil? I'm like, what's a pencil? Who uses pencils in this school? Um, I, I I think it's um it slows down. It's for for us for me at least. It's inefficient. I'd rather type okay. something. I can even start typing while kids are up to me looking at me, and I can without you know. <laughs> looking at the keyboard and whereas if you're writing you have to stop and well one of the interesting things is the due dates now the due times are not on they're not like 59 p.m yeah they're at mid like midnight or something like it's that it's defaulted in most um, learning management systems and teachers are lazy just like coders okay um <laughs> interesting okay well thanks yeah and, well i think the the whole typing versus writing is it should have a purpose right there yeah. should be an intent behind it so if the in some grade levels and in some settings, the idea of writing something out is really important. It might be to help slow down the thinking or mm -hmm. even sometimes the tactile feel and the feedback that you get from the pen or the pencil moving across the paper, right? It's the satisfying part of using a crayon. Yeah. But as long as it's not, oh, write it because I told you to, right? Or write, or it, write it so it. you don't cheat. <laughs> right. <laughs> it should be it should be there for a purpose or a reason. We, we want you to write this out because we want you to slow down and think about what you're writing or take the time to process what you're writing instead of just, you know, typing it out. That makes sense to me. But I, I never I'm, appreciated the just hmm. do it because I said so. Yeah. I'm, I'm concerned about the kid's ability to doodle while the teacher's talking, though. Uh, yeah. Are we losing that? Teachers no. don't teachers don't like uh, nope. kids to doodle while they're talking anyways, because they're like, you're not listening. Um, and I mean, that's that's what's said. Right. We, on the other hand, we have whiteboard markers all over the table, you know, out there for the tables and the walls. That was something that Sean and I started and has kept um, because we do like the process of writing, like Sean said, I, you know, what, write out your pseudocode, think about what's going on. How would this look if you were writing, writing yeah. something in an editor? hundred percent. But actual writing stories. I, I use well, Grammarly, like your tweet. <laughs> well, um, I forgot we we have a we haven't got to our joke yet. So okay. this is this is true. I actually have Sorry. a really quick follow up now. Um, for people who are like in the digital side, but kind of want this, mm -hmm. you could check out Paperlike, which is a screen protector for your iPad that gives it writing on paper feel. Oh, nice for the the pen. That might be kind of nice because still writing on on glass is just odd. All right, but on to the joke. Uh, we got a couple of jokes. Uh, Marco was picking on me earlier, saying, well, you use Mastodon, Michael? I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But as much as I love it, I tried to pull up the jokes last week, which were on Mastodon, and they would not pull up. If I pulled them up when I was logged into Mastodon, they would say, you can't find these. But if I pull them up in an incognito window, guess what? You can find them. So I want to highlight a couple of jokes. We talked about recursion like the week before, and Kim Van Wyk says, um, given the nature of the joke, perhaps next week's uh, Python Bytes joke could just be, see last week's Python's Python bites joke. <laughs> when we, when we, and also I saw another uh, joke or not really a joke, but sort of a, a, a meme derived from a real thing is apparently crows or ravens can can learn recursion. And so it's just a, a, a matter of time before they take over the world. So. <laughs> no, they're going to get it stuck in in a uh, race condition where they don't have a base, uh, base case and we'll never see them again. They're like, no exit condition. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The call stack got too deep. Sorry. <laughs> why, why did that raven fall over? Well, it just went in circles faster and faster until it collapsed. All right. Then I got a, another uh, Mastodon sort of follow on joke because, you know, Mastodon is like open source and like independent and not corporate. And it's, uh, but it's kind of weird. So this person says, timeline of a new Mastodon user. Day one, this sucks. Servers are confusing. Why is my feed empty? Day two, there's no quote tweet. This is dumb. Day three, Mastodon better make some changes if it wants to compete with Twitter. Day seven, hmm, people are nice here, really nice. <laughs> Day 10, I'm loving the note ads and real conversations. Day 15, the workers must seize the production, <laughs> the means of production to execute the capitalists, might I add, <laughs> the billionaires first. <laughs> it's like, ah, yeah, maybe I can see people getting a little too, uh, too <laughs> intense in this. And then, uh, uh, let's see here. That's too true. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is the timeline. We're like on day 15 around here. And then I saw some, some one of y'all put this joke in here as well. Uh, someone want to take that one? Yeah, this is the, uh, you know, my source for most of my geek humor, which is XKCD. And it's a matrix, of, a feature matrix of the various social media platforms. And so on the left side, it's got things like direct messages, group chats, file transfer, built-in games, user-run instances, doesn't require central server. So it just goes all the way down. And across the top, it's Twitter, Discord, Mastodon, Facebook, just goes all the way to the right. And on the very right side, you know, everything has like maybe half of the checkboxes at most filled in for features. But on the very right side, it says the Cybeco wireless handheld computer for teens from the year 2000. <laughs> and it's every single checkbox. It does all of it from 22 years ago. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. We were living in the future and we just didn't know it. Yep. So now there's going to be a run on Cybeco uh, computers on eBay. You'll never be able to find one now. It'll be like Raspberry Pis. They're just to be un unobtainium. Yeah. Like that uh, quote, the future is now is not true. The future is 22 years ago. You missed it. Yeah. <laughs> You're late <laughs> in the game. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so thanks, uh, thanks everybody for coming on the show. It was a lot of fun. Uh, was, thanks, Michael. Yeah. Thank you for having us. We always enjoy it. Yeah, right. thanks always for coming, Sean and Kelly. Bye. Yeah. Bye, everyone. See you.